Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And my guest this week is Ophira Eisenberg. Her book is called Screw Everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's out by Seal Press. And tell us a little bit about where that title comes from. Uh, okay, so the full title is Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. And yes, the Screw Everyone on its own has a double meaning, as it should be. It is sort of like, screw everyone, I'm doing things my own way. And also screw everyone because it has a narrative arc. So it's a collection of stories, but with a narrative arc about my relationships and how basically I dated a lot of people. As I like to say, it was a large sample size, very large sample size to figure out what I wanted and who I wanted. And the second part of the title, which is um, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, is, spoiler alert, ends with monogamy because I end up finding a guy that, uh, you know, for lack of a, of a more interesting way of saying it, I settled down with this dude. Yeah. Fairly <laughs> unexpectedly on your part, as, as the first half of the book makes pretty clear. Though. Yeah, I, I feel like the idea... I used to think that the idea of not wanting to get married and not wanting to have kids as a, as a young girl, not growing up with any, any of those fantasies in my mind, or attaching myself to the fantasies of like, what will my pretty wedding dress look like? And I can't wait for that day. It's going to be the most important. Like, none of that resonated with me. And I thought that was unique. And then I got to know other women, of course, as I grew up. And I realized that was not that unique. But then I got to know even more women. Then I realized it was unique again. Like, the more people I talk to, the more I find out that people are actually quite traditional in their thinking. And a lot of girls grew up wanting like really dreaming over their wedding dress and their Prince Charming and their like, and, and those being major goals in their life. So yeah, I did, I don't think I knew at the time that I was, you know, doing something different, but I certainly found that out by reactions. Let's backtrack a little to yeah. where this all started. You grew up in Canada. Calgary, Alberta. Yeah. What was your family like growing up? I'm the youngest of six. So big family. My, my parents are much older and they're sort of like most people my age, they're the age of their grandparents, my parents. Because my mother had me when she was 43. And she grew up in Nijmegen, Holland. And she met my father during the end of World War II. This is what I'm talking about when I say the uh, age. Uh, he was living in Israel before it was Israel. It was kind of Palestine. And he was fighting for the British Army. And they rolled into Nijmegen, which is just on the German border, Actually, following it was right at the liberation movement uh, at the end of World War II, and uh, you know the army was basically sending troops through that were helping rebuild the city because it was completely bombed out. And my mother was 16 years old, and back then the soldiers would stay with you. Basically, the soldiers would knock on your door and they would stay with you, and it was expected because they were fighting for you that you would give them room and board. Totally, I, I actually did not know that, but this is the way it worked. And so they became friendly. And also the soldiers had the tents with the movies and entertainment, and they would go on dates with the girls, and that's, that was what was going on. My father also would steal supplies from the uh, army canteen for uh, my mother's family, which is a very interesting thing, just because they were rationed with coffee and sugar, so he would steal handfuls of this stuff. Anyway, that's why you fall in love with someone, because they bring you coffee and sugar. And then they moved to Israel for a while, or Palestine, and then it became Israel, and then they moved to Canada, had kids along the way, and then came to St. John's. It's a long way of talking about how, where I'm from. But anyways, it's just because there's this 
I grew up with parents that were different from the parents that they were for every single one of my siblings. So the household I grew up in was strangely traditional on some level. I would say the wisdom that was imparted was at times outdated and at times very not influenced by modern culture in kind of a wonderful way. So very survivalist and pragmatic and, you know, just things that I highly, I like really respect now. I wasn't allowed, for example, we just weren't allowed to hate food. If I was like, I don't like broccoli, it would be like, we're not, you know, who, like, that would be like a spoiled kid. It's like, you're not, you're not spoiled. You don't deserve, you're going to eat it. It's food. It's good food. It doesn't matter. And so you'll eat broccoli until you learn to love it. <laughs> Which sounds very harsh, but it was just this idea that, you know, you're not special and you do, you get, you, it's an equal world and you have to participate equally. And I do think all that, that actually influenced how I thought about relationships. It's like, can't sit around waiting for Mr. Right. You can't sit around waiting. Who knows if it even exists? You know, it's like a, it's a tough world. You gotta be pragmatic about this. You gotta make a plan and go out there and just see what fits. And, and also sort of like, and how am I to know? Am I really going to know everything just by looking at someone's eyes and being like, I, I, and I was very hesitant about that ability. I was like, how would you know? How would you actually know that this is the person that you're supposed to be with? People talk about like, oh, you just know. And I think that is a combination of many things. Timing, perspective, where you are. It's romance. I mean, there's all these things that make up that moment. But I see it in a very pragmatic way. Your father died when you were a teenager. Yes. So your dating pretty much started off, you know, your father wasn't there. And your mother, who was now like in her late 50s. Yes. Pretty much took a hand. You, I mean, you were a teenager, so you could reasonably be expected to take care of yourself. And she... Seems to have given you a pretty wide berth. Yeah, I mean, I think what happened too, so if you just think of this, here's a, a young woman who grew up in war-torn Holland, barely experiences, you know, much of a teenagehood, and then at 16, marries someone and is pregnant immediately, and is having kids and is now a mother, and they were poor, 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 for many, many years. So all of a sudden, now she's in her 50s, uh, she's raised all of her kids, and except for one still <laughs> dragging around the house and her uh, husband dies and she sort of had a rebirth and it was strange because we kind of went through teenagehood together she just happened to have hers much later in life when she could have it i mean after she mourned the death of my father she kind of went out and decided i have to live my life i'm going to date for the first time in my life and I was dating for the first time in my life. And I think because of that, she just was like, you're on your own, kid. See what you... And it was great. It was great. Probably terrifying at some level, at some point, but I don't remember it being terrifying in hindsight. I remember it being great. I mean, there's probably a couple times when someone could have said, uh, hey, uh, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> but I just had to make those own, make my decisions. In talking about your dating life, I was thinking about this as I was composing the questions and it's like well we don't want to say promiscuous because that's there's a judgment implied in that yes there's almost judgments with all these words yeah. but yes at the same time it's like 
you don't necessarily want to say not picky because then that kind of turns it into a joke. Yeah, I mean, I make that joke quite often in the book because I think it's kind of fun to own that idea of not being picky. Plus, not being picky the way I was raised was a, a that was that meant you were adventurous and you were open minded and actually brought a lot of positive things. Being picky meant you were spoiled and kind of tedious and specific and things that were negative. So, yes, I don't mind not picky, but yes, continue. Yeah. But and I was I think the, the the way that you just put it now it's kind of hard to come up with like one word that kind of like sums that up. You know, it was I think this is pretty interesting and it's a little bit of a cultural thing that my book thankfully is being translated into a couple different languages. And two right now that we're working on is um German and Dutch, actually, strangely. Dutch has nothing to do with my mother. It's just a, a coincidence. But translating the title has been quite difficult. And the way the Germans translated it, and it's very similar for the Dutch, is basically like, it's, it was, it's basically like you can have it all and still find the one. But can you imagine our culture talking about a woman sleeping around? as you can still have it all, that is not how we talk about it. That's a very European ideal. was like, yeah, you can have it all, have all the fun you want, and still settle down, which is super positive. <laughs> so I really think that the words that we have to, and with guys, you know, and it is, of course, a little bit of a sexist thing, because guys always talk about, oh, you need to sow your seeds, or play the field, or, you know, it's very acceptable for a man to have many partners along the way before he settles down while he is basically figuring out who he is and defining his character. There was a book that came out like maybe about a dozen or so years ago called Date Like a Man. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And it was instructional somewhat, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I know. And there's a lot of people that when this came out that they were like, oh, you basically took a male approach, which I was like, I, no, I did not take a male approach. I still had, I never thought of it. I never thought about it like that. So again, it's sort of like, I guess... Yeah, it's not like you saw guys like running around playing the field. Right. Like, oh, I want me some of that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the <laughs> reference point to be able to think like a guy. I was just thinking how I thought. I was just improvising like everybody else and trying to see what felt right. But I guess I was just open to uh, trial and error. I think I always realized someone that I was someone more to, you know, put my hand on the stove to realize it was hot. And I like. I like adventure. I like newness. I like things that are unfamiliar. It's the familiar things that scare me more. <laughs> People always say your fear of the unknown. It's the known things that scare me far more. <laughs> you talk about it in terms of trial and error, and we've also discussed it in sort of a pragmatic perspective. One of the things that's striking is that, you know, even as you admit that it's like, well, you know, this is kind of fraught with, with bumps and, and detours along the way, is that it's not particularly a defeatist attitude towards like, well, I'm going to date what's around because that, that's what's what's around. Yeah, I mean, and I think it goes back a little bit to the not picky. This is a really simple way of, of it, but I thought of this analogy a few times, that I feel like I am someone that if you put me in a clothing store, clothing I love, and said, this is a clothing store, you have to buy one thing. I could probably figure out one thing to buy in any clothing store in the entire world. If you gave me 20 guys in a room and said, you have to date one of them, I bet I could make it work. 
<laughs> I mean, as time has gone on, of course, I've really figured out a lot more what I like, what I don't like, and blah, 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 but that's all based on experience. But in general, I always thought, like, give me something to work with and I'll work with it. Maybe I should have been, I would be the perfect mail order bride. What was the, the turning point where, after this period of trial and error and, let's say, non-committal dating? Sure. What clicks into place to change all that? So there's a little bit of pure luck or whatever, randomness that I can't account for. But I can account for a bunch of things. One is uh, either age or quantity, you know, years or mileage. I don't know which one. But at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm starting now to just repeat these. I'm repeating things I already know. So, you know, I, I had fun in this situation, blah, 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 and then it got to the point where it was getting a little bit repetitive, and I wasn't really experiencing much things that were new or surprising, and I wasn't clicking with people as easily. And again, that's kind of a product of age. I think you get a little bit more solidified in what you like, and a little bit more specific, and hanging out at the bars, which I still love doing. You know, I, it was like, how long can I sustain just hanging out at bars? I love it, but... Sorry, you know, I didn't want it to seem look desperate. I became a little bit more aware and self-conscious of how I looked in these settings. But also, I think, you know, in a weird way, I just got to the point where I was thought I should try to I should try to date someone for like a year just to see what that's like. Like now, I want to switch gears and do something new, and this new experience will be. You know, sustaining a more long-term relationship for a while. I had many long-term relationships, and then I went for much shorter-term relationships. But I always craved connection. And it seemed to me in a place like New York, where things are a little crazier here, and people's lives move very fast, and you have to make appointments even with your best friends months in advance, that the connection you make with people takes longer to establish and you just have to work hard at it in general. So I, I wanted to have that connection, and I couldn't have it with the casual dating. And I, I just yearned for that. But And I also met someone who struck me as a guy that was nice, and that sounds like the most simplest of characteristics. But let me tell you, it's not. And he was just nice. It wasn't. I didn't feel like he was going to screw me over. <laughs> <laughs> the bar is low. When you're like, wow, you don't seem like a criminal. You're not living with your mom. <laughs> you're not living with your mom. You don't have jars of pee in your bedroom. Yeah. You don't have a collection of stuffed animals. For you sure. don't have a collection of stuffed animals. Yes, he has collections of comic books, which was, you know. See, but that's perfectly normal. That, that is normal. That is, that is becoming actually, you know, that's almost mainstream, right? That's almost boring now. So the turning point was a little bit of like finding this guy and realizing that I was looking for a change and I found him. He was a nice guy and good guy and I was attracted to him. And it was just sort of like, well, roll the dice. I mean, he has to agree to this too. So it can't be one-sided. And somehow it worked. And how long have you guys been married now? We've been married for seven years. It's like forever. I mean, it feels that feels like a, a long time. We've been dating for almost ten. I mean, together dating. We've dated separately, then we're married. Uh, no, all in all, we're, we've uh, we've been together a decade, almost a decade. It's a lot of time spent with someone. In your professional life, you are a radio host and a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And so, crafting a persona and presenting a persona to to the world is is a big part of what you do. But it's within a very particular kind of format, a very performative kind of format. And I'm wondering what got you thinking about memoir writing or, or 
linked essay writing. You know, it, it was actually a huge product of having the place to do that as performance. So when I started doing stand-up, people really didn't do a lot of narrative, not, not a lot of personal storytelling in that narrative form on stage, but a lot of comics would do one-person shows. I feel like that was like a huge sort of performance genre in the like late 90s and early thousands, right? People were, do, and then that kind of died off a little bit or got less, there was, everyone was doing one and I was working on one too. And then I got less, and at the same time, as the shorter form storytelling kind of gained emergence, which now that is super popular, I heard about The Moth, which is a storytelling performance organization. People don't know. It's a, you go up and it's organized by theme and a slam and you get to, you put your name in the hat and maybe the theme is betrayal. And if you get picked, you go up there and tell a five minute true story about your life to do with that theme. And so I started and I really, and the most of the people that were there weren't necessarily performers, a lot of them were writers. It was kind of a whole different group of people that I met in stand-up. So I met a lot of memoir writers and because that form fits so nicely together, they were telling personal stories on stage and writing personal stories and books. And I just loved it. I loved it. And then, and I started compiling these stories. I mean, many of them I compiled anyways, but I didn't have a place for them. And I actually met my agent because she was in the audience at a MOS show. Because she, and many of these literary agents would go out to MOS shows to sort of scout or get an idea of what people were doing as the memoir genre was gaining also, right? That became more and more popular uh, around those times. So it was a it was a nice combination of all these things coming together, you know, years and years of hard work and then this great stage where you could do some of that and someone being in the audience. And, and then obviously I, I talked to her and we really clicked. So in the beginning, I actually wanted to write a memoir about failing. <laughs> I was going to call it Points for Trying, and it was just going to be stories of failing, whether it was in relationships or in my years, like, trying to establish myself as a stand-up comic or with other jobs or just sort of in life in general, because, you know, I have tried a lot of things in life, and, I, and that means I have failed a lot. And so I thought that'd be fun, and she was like, um... <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to read a book about failing. <laughs> like, what if it's a really funny book about failing? <laughs> you know, she was just like, listen, you have all these great relationship stories. What about switching the lens a little bit and looking at them through that lens? Uh, and, you know, as a female writer, and from a marketing point of view, writing a book on relationships and love is a easier angle to sell. So kind of figured it out through that. You mentioned it's an easier angle to sell, but at yeah. the same time, the angle that you're choosing is, as we talked about before, the whole sort of like, yeah, I slept around and it was great, and I'm yeah. and, I, and I and I'm not sorry, and I'm not sorry exactly, yeah. yeah. That seems like it might be a, a harder angle to sell in some in some venues. Yeah, well, I mean, the and because we settled on this title, I worked really, you know, the title is the last thing to be added, and that was, the book was basically written, and the title came months afterwards. I mean, we just rolled around with what the perfect title was for a long, long time, and because of that title, it has certainly taken me, I mean, you just, you really just feel the Puritan side of things. I work in public radio. Some public radio was, they could not believe they got to say that title. Some of the women's magazines that are a little bit 
more family oriented were kind of worried about the title. I did get reactions from some women that I that they were very confused, I think, that I wasn't sorry or shameful. And that made me very concerned with culture. <laughs> I gotta say. It made me very concerned with culture. Just because I feel like there's a lot of young women. That's why there's all the slut shaming stuff that goes on. I've been asked to you know unbelievable political offshoots of writing a book like this that I did not anticipate because I thought I was running, writing a funny memoir about my life through relationships. And all of a sudden I'm having people ask me to speak at their university against slut-shaming, and I'm getting emails from people who are, are telling me their story, oh, I'm just like you, and blah, 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 and I wish it could be more celebrated. Other people, women who grew up, were teenagers in the 70s, and they're like, what happened to culture? It used to be more like what you're talking about, where it wasn't so precious and blah, blah, blah. Kathy Lee Gifford on the Today Show asking me if I had any diseases. I'm like, I, it's actually possible to be a smart, educated woman who takes care of her body and has sex a few times in her life. It's possible. I don't know why these things seem so separate in this culture. So on one side, I just heard from all these women who are like, well, of course, that's our story too. Why aren't we all talking about this and realizing that this is all of our stories and it's all okay? And then these other women that I have scared the shit out of them by making this sound normal. Has that process that has come up in the reactions, has has it sort of spurred you in terms of further writing? It really makes me a lot more conscious, I, I guess, about what I'm writing, and it has, in some way, it's ignited a part of my personality that, like, I'm even a little bit more stubborn. Some of the things I think when I just be like, oh, I think this, oh, I think this. Now I'm pretty stubborn about it. I would almost advise, I would never advise someone to do anything that they don't feel like doing, but I wish, you know, more women were told to, like, go out and find what they like doing in their in their life and who they like and feel no pressure to settle down. Feel no pressure. What if they felt no pressure? Or to reproduce. I mean, they could, if they want to have a baby, have as many babies as you want. But, but just to remove the pressure of it. I feel very, I feel so sad the way sometimes I read women's magazines because uh, maybe I'm trying to pitch something to them, and the way that people talk about casual sex, and I, I go, it's, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be void of humanity. It can still be a nice experience. It could just last one night. <laughs> so it, I feel like I, uh, I'm just attuned to it. Yeah, I'm just a, I'm more attuned to it. And if I don't write about sex anymore because it's, I, it's a joke almost to me that people are like, what's your next book about? I'm like, when you write about, if I said to you, do you want to hear about these stories of these like guys I dated when I was single and trying to figure it out, people are like, oh yeah, okay. But if I say, hey, do you want to hear these stories about me sleeping with my husband? People are like, not really. <laughs> well, that actually raises a question that I was going to bring up. How does your husband feel about having your relationship pretty much, you know, from the first date? Yeah, kind of laid out on the page. He was very good at about. It. I mean, the the over. He's proud of it. He has read it. So, but even before he read it, because a lot of the a lot of the stories I have told on stage. So he's seen them. He's known me through me, you know, kind of trying to make my way in the stand-up world because we dated all through that time. So he's sort of seen the process and seen some of the finer moments and some of the rougher moments. But with the book, there was only one chapter that he had issue with. 
and it's a chapter where I find a list that he has written of all the women he's ever been with. And that, that was like really, that was actually a really, I, I managed to write it, I think, being true to the story, and I don't know if I got across just how brutal that was, but it was, it was really hard on him, and because it was sort of a trust issue in general. That was just a really bizarre point for us to try to deal with. And he didn't like the idea of that being exposed. But then he read it, and he couldn't. He said he couldn't argue with what happened. So, <laughs> and, it, and it, I mean, part of this is the way that it's presented, but it certainly does come across as a pivotal moment in, in your conception of the relationship. We had like a few pivot points. I think that's how it usually happens. You don't get there's not one big explosive one, but you have three heavy ones. That all happened at the same time, and that was one of them. I think the the one that was the most story worthy, frankly. And you know, he he comes across pretty well in this book. Comes across as a pretty good guy. So he also well, better than the Garfield. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think a, a friend of his read it and just was like, "Wow, you came off great in that book." And he was like, "What do you mean? That's who I am." So there you go. Most of the you know he all, all the feedback he's received has been really positive. <laughs> Have you been writing new material lately? I've been writing different stuff. I was actually, I've been writing a little bit more about doing stand-up and what that has been like. And I actually have just been writing things other than about relationships. I mean, ultimately, I truly believe every story is kind of about a relationship in some way or another. It's emotional connection or something. So, but I'm writing some different stuff, uh, relationships with friends and relationships to money <laughs> and lots of stand-up stuff because I just realized that there's some stories in there that I like to tell but also I'm working on this radio show and that's a big chunk of life the book got optioned to be a feature film and so I have been in they hired a screenwriter to do this but I've been working with her on you know trying to get the tone and the feel of it right or something I mean they want to make sure my tone and feel is in it which is very nice it's one of those things where you can imagine in less sensitive hands that it could end up really badly. Yes, and when I decided to, again, unbelievable compliment for someone to be like, we want to option this, and you go, oh my god, it's amazing, but you, you do have to think in that moment, all right, so if this becomes some disaster, am I okay with that? And you have to trust kind of a bunch of people along the way you have to make sure I like hopefully the age but the, the agent that was doing the sale I felt like he totally got it so you know that's the best you can do does the next person totally get it you hope so but you have to make a choice and just go alright so I'm going to risk it all and what if it's a, what if it's the worst piece of garbage ever and I'm shamed and then you just go eh who cares yeah. and by like does anyone remember? And by that point, somebody's going to decide that Ophira is a weird name and change the name of the protagonist. And, yeah, right. And yeah, no one will yeah, associate exactly. it with you anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just have some like name way back in the credits. <laughs> I'll count my $200 and we'll all move on. Yeah, it sounds okay. I, I was willing to take the risk. But you're right. No, it's a, it's a real concern. And people also sort of think, I mean, the whole business, if you're not in it, is a little bit of a mystery to them because people are like, well, you know, who's going to play you? And what if they don't do it right? And, blah, blah, blah. and you go, oh, my God. Let's, that'd be great if we had to have those conversations. Yeah, but where I stand right now is like, let's just hope it goes further into anything. I mean, that's a great thing to have a project that go, has another life to it. 
as an artist, I feel like that's, you know, as an artist, I, I feel almost, uh, I can't even say that about myself sometimes. I'm like an artist. It sounds so highbrow. But that's what you want. You want your work to be able to go into a couple different mediums. That's fantastic. Well, we will see what happens on that front. Thank you, yes. In the meantime, the book is out right now. It's called Screw Everyone. I've been talking to Ophira Eisenberg about it for Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us through iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed through iTunes, it's very easy to do. And either way, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It makes it a little bit easier for the next person to find it. Five stars. Five stars. Absolutely. (laughs) So I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me for another episode soon. Take care.